This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, it's Sean Vincent. Thanks for joining the podcast today. Today, our guest is Tatiana Whitlock, and she is a well-regarded firearms instructor. And we enjoy talking to her because we talk to a lot of guys about self-defense, and Tatiana brings uh, the benefit of her experience and the experiences and concerns of women who attend her classes. But this is not just a podcast for... Uh, ladies who are concerned with self-defense, there's a lot of great listen, uh, a lot of great lessons here for for everyone who's concerned with self-defense, and in this case, home defense. We're going to talk about a case that's a few years old about a mother, a woman in outside of Atlanta, Georgia, who encountered a home intruder during the day while she was home alone with her two nine-year-old twins. It's an interesting story. There's good lessons to be drawn from this. And it sparked a conversation about revolvers versus semi-automatics. We have a conversation about uh, how you choose a firearm based upon its capacity. And and an interesting... um, Contrast and points of views on how to handle a apparent intruder who bangs loudly on your door during the middle of the day. This will be Don West. He's National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe and longtime criminal defense attorney. Joined by Steve Moses, CCW Safe contributor and firearms instructor, uh, along with me, Sean Vincent, litigation consultant, talking to our friend Tatiana Whitlock. Tatiana, when we were talking about the weapon choice uh, and making the right fit, you talked about capacity. And uh, we're about to talk about a case in Georgia where this mother, home with her nine-year-old twins, had a six-shooter revolver. And, and she shot an intruder five times with it, and that that didn't quite finish the job, <laughs> or at least he got a, he ran out of the house and uh, uh, ran into a tree trying to escape, and was actually uh, begging with her to stop shooting him in the face while she was shooting him in the face. So so uh, I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to ask you about uh, your opinions on on capacity when it comes to your self defense choice. But uh, you're familiar. You brought this Melinda Herman case to our attention. Can you describe a little bit your recollection of what happened here? Certainly. So this story is one of Melinda Herman, as you mentioned, her two nine year old twins, a little boy and a little girl. Melinda was working from home on a Friday and she saw through the window a man walk up to her front door and he ran the, rang the doorbell twice, didn't get the response he was hoping for, and then incessantly rang the doorbell. She got the, the clue that this was not, this was not going to be good. So she grabs her cell phone, she grabs her children, she calls her husband who is at work, she tells him what's going on and he's telling her to get the gun and hide. And she does. 
but when she goes to hide, she goes and does a bunch of things in the interim. So on her way to going and hiding in this crawl, attic crawl space, which is one of those little doors you got to kind of pop open and crawl through to get in deep in her house, she locks three doors behind her on her way. So by the time she gets her and her kids into the crawl space, there are three layers of locked doors between her and her attacker who does break through and with the crowbar into the house. So not only does he physically and aggressively break into the house, but he pursues the family inside it. And using that crowbar, he breaks, finds them by breaking through three doors. Now this is in the afternoon. This isn't uh, in the dark of the evenings. And according to the FBI, the majority of home invasions happen between 10 a.m. and I think 3.30 or 4 p.m., which is not what the movies and primetime TV would have you believe. It's supposed to be 3 a.m. in the dark. You know, this is a full daylight experience. So by the time the attacker gets through to the crawl space, she's on the phone again with her husband and her husband has two phones going simultaneously. He has her on one cell phone and she has 911 whom he's called on her behalf on the other line on the other hand. So what we have for 911 information is you're hearing through his cell phone and what he is telling her while he's on the line with dispatch. And he's reminding her, remember everything I taught you. Previously, just recently before that, he had taken her to the range to show her how to shoot one of the two types of handguns they had in the home for home defense. And she learned on the revolver. So that's the gun that she grabbed. And thankfully they had spent that time together. When the attacker breaks through the crawl space door, she opened up. She had six round capacity in that gun. She shot all six. Only one missed the attacker. All of the other five went into the attacker who fled. When he fled, she also fled to a neighbor's house. He ran off in his SUV, hitting a tree on the way, and then was found in another neighbor's yard by law enforcement officers. So this is, a, this is an incredible story. Um, not only was there a home invasion, but they were pursued aggressively within their home. And this is a mother alone with her two small children. This is, this is every mother's worst nightmare. Uh, yeah, and, and it's, like you say, it's just a, a remarkable story. And uh, Steve, uh, we have talked about a couple of other home intruder cases where you've talked about the merits of, uh, we don't use the word retreat anymore, but a, a tactical withdrawal to a different part of the house where you can make a better defense or you're in a more defensible position and the benefits are not just tactical, but also legal, you know, uh, Don, when it comes to justifying, uh, self-defense, you know, in home intrusion cases, you, you we've, uh, explored a few cases where people have made a mistake of going outside to meet the intruder, or they've shot in through closed doors or right at the threshold, um, but Tatiana, you made a real point of talking about how she locked three doors behind her. Those are three very clear thresholds that this guy had to violently get through. Uh, from a tackle point of view, from a legal point of view, there's no questioning that this guy's intent is to do them harm. Well, this is Don. Let me. I, I'm not challenging the conclusion. Sure. But 
the facts aren't the, the the facts aren't quite as clear in this case as I would want them to be. Although legally, I, I don't think it matters because of the being in the inside her own home with an intruder. Uh, but when this this is a fellow named uh, Paul Slater who is a pretty experienced criminal who did the sorts of things that pretty experienced burglars in particular often do before they burglarize a home. As Tatiana said, it often occurs during the daytime. And in my experience, that's often because the assumption is no one's at home and that there won't be any confrontation inside. And he did the sorts of things that those burglars often do. They ring the doorbell two or three times to see if somebody comes to the door and they say, make up some silly story and then leave. In this instance, he didn't get the response. He continued to push and push and push, I, I guess satisfying himself, arguably, that there was no one home. It looks like he then went back to his vehicle and got a tool of some sort, maybe a crowbar, and then broke into the house. Uh, what's unclear to me is whether he in fact knew they were home and whether he was in fact pursuing them. He said he didn't think anybody was home. He admitted at his sentencing that he went in to steal but denied that he had any intention to confront or harm the occupants claiming he had no knowledge there was anybody home. Uh, when I said before I don't know that it matters it, it's because was the homeowner's response reasonable under those circumstances? And I suspect that regardless of whether the intruder knew there was somebody home, she reasonably feared great bodily harm or death for herself or her, and her children. And she had the presumption that typically goes along with a homeowner defending their castle. These were interior doors. There's no doubt someone was in the house without permission. She felt she knew who it was in the sense that she saw it with somebody she didn't know at the door. So I think legally, whether she, whether he knew they were home or not doesn't really make any legal difference. Although um, it makes probably a lot of difference if, uh, if the judge is trying to decide what a fair and proper sentence would be for somebody in his situation. Is he being sentenced as a burglar who's breaking doors so he can get inside the house to where he thinks the values might be? Or is he pursuing the occupants of the home clearly with the intent of terrorizing or harming or, or even killing? Um, I, I don't, don't know for sure how the judge shook this out. I do know Mr. Slater's in prison and expected to be there for a number of years. He, he, I think he got a 20-year sentence and has to serve about 10 of it before he's eligible for release. So obviously the judge took it very, very seriously. Although a guy with a criminal record under these circumstances, uh, that kind of sentence isn't disproportional even if there, there wasn't anybody home and it was just a uh, career criminal you know, doing their thing. Hey Steve, I got We had a conversation one time. It's weird. A lot of the cases that we look at, there's a one shot fired, and that shot ends up being fatal. And and here we have a guy struck in the face and neck five times. He survives, 
and is talking and walks away. And you told me in one of our conversations that uh, firearms designed to, I'm going to mess this up and you can correct me, but you want to stop an attacker. You want to make it so uncomfortable to keep attacking you that they withdraw. And, and sometimes OC spray can do that, but um, uh, other times it takes a, a firearm. And just tell me about this crazy situation where this guy gets shot in the face five times and survives. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I don't know uh, what he was shot in the face with. And uh, that may sound like, okay, why is he asking that question? Uh, if it was just plain training ammo, uh, full metal jacket ammo, it doesn't tend to expand uh, when it strikes the human body. Typically, a, a good hollow point ammunition will expand. It gets a little more defined cutting edge. Uh, that cutting edge actually is what does the tissue damage. And if you're struck uh, in an area where you're going to hit the central nervous system or uh, an artery, or a solid organ like the liver or something like that, uh, there's, that, that person is very much capable of uh, staying, you know, animate and engaged as long as, 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 they, as they want to. So, uh, as I understand, she was in a crawl space. She had to duck to get under it. It sounds to me that he was probably very much in the same position. That is, he was in probably on his hands and knees uh, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm, I'm speculating if that's where she was located. And so, you know, she fires six rounds in probably, in probably, I don't know what you think, Tatiana, a second and a half, two seconds, and the guy can't really do too much about it. And absent one of those rounds, just one of those rounds striking the, you know, the central nervous system or, you know, an artery, there's a very good chance that, yeah, that's all survivable. So that in and of itself is just not you know, terribly surprising to me. One of the things that I did not realize was that he had knocked on the door uh, before you know, uh, going back to his vehicle and getting a, you know, a tool which he could use to break into the, entrance, into the premises. Uh, I'd like to recommend to our students that if you're at home and someone rings the doorbell during the day, that you go ahead and you acknowledge that. That is, who is it? And I'm sorry, I can't let you in. Uh, because indeed, what these people are doing, much as what Don described, they're trying to determine whether or not there's somebody in the house. If there's somebody, there's not anybody in the house, as evidenced by the fact that nobody answered the door, then, okay, that gives them additional incentive to go ahead and break in. So anytime you have that opportunity to, you know, hey, we're here, who are you? Uh, sorry, you have to go away. Uh, I think you should do that. Uh, I thought that what she did in many ways was pretty outstanding. Uh, she gathered up her children. She got access to uh, the revolver. Uh, she, I'm going to go ahead and use the word, she retreated to a more defensible space. And she got herself into a position where basically she was going to see that guy before he saw her. And so I thought her response, uh, in and of itself, uh, I, I, I thought it was it, it was admirable. Uh, the only thing that I have any kind of reservations about, and perhaps this is just me, and I I, I want to go ahead and say maybe I'm biased, is I, I I think I would be uncomfortable in getting into a small crawl space like that, as there's no place else there for me to exit, 
And then once I'm in there, I have no other options in terms of my being able to move. So, you know, perhaps I might have instead uh, selected a hard corner, got my girls with me, so that I was in a position where I could see more, I could move if necessary. Uh, I probably would have preferred to do that, but I really don't want to, you know, second guess her too much at this point. Yeah, so Tatiana, what... This is... Uh... Go ahead, Doc. Well, I wanted to just piggyback on a couple of things that Steve said and uh, following up on what my comment earlier and see if Tatiana and Steve have some thoughts for us as, as the trainers. You know, Steve uh, pointed out that if somebody's knocking on your door, maybe it makes the most sense to acknowledge that you are home, but of course not, not let them in uh, as a bit of a deterrent for the person who's trying to find an empty house to go burglarize. In the comments to some of the news articles on this case, people made various comments, uh, including that. But then some others said they were convinced he didn't know there was anybody home. And they recommended that even after he got in the house and was rummaging around, the occupants in this in the instance, the uh, the woman there with her children should have made it known they were there and said, you know, hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. That sort of thing uh, to make it clear to the burglar that there was somebody home, assuming that would be enough to cause them to run off. I I'm not sure I would agree with that. I, I completely agree with what I agree with what you said, Steve, about not, you know, making it clear that you're home and not letting them in if that's you know, that is more likely to run somebody up. But what happens when they're inside, even if they don't know what you're, that you're there? Do you take the chance that by pointing out where you are, that will be enough to discourage them and they'll run off? Or are you giving up some tactical advantages uh, by, you know, revealing yeah. your location? So there's a lot for you to chew on there, Tatiana. But why don't we start with your opinion on on how to handle someone at the door during the day? Because I know... You know, my wife, her policy when she's home alone is ignoring anyone who comes to the door. We have a little ring doorbell. She might look at it to see who would, who's there. What What's your take on that? Well, here's how. Here's where I begin that conversation. Um, my children are not allowed to answer the door alone. Uh, they're never allowed to go to the door. Period. If someone's knocking on it, they're to come and get me. And, uh, or another adult, and that other adult's job is to manage that moment. So that's, that's number one, if you've got little kids. If you are going to acknowledge someone through the door, you better have a voice of authority. And that voice of authority needs to be a deterrent. And many people don't like sounding rude uh, or, or assertive. Um, if you're an individual who hasn't practiced speaking with authority and making statements, not questions or polite suggestions, that's an awkward and uncomfortable place to be, especially if you're nervous and unsure. So people like to say, you should announce yourself, but what's the script? And just like the, what Claude says, you have to have a general plan and you also have to have practiced it. Have you practiced saying the words that mean the things with enough volume and confidence that the person on the receiving end believes it? 
Or are you going to start mumbling and, and sounding timid and nervous and almost provoking them to come and find you or challenging them or, oh, hey, guess what's on the other side? Because the other part of this conversation is that, yes, home invasions are happening and especially pre-COVID, but during the day when the man of the house is often gone. So while attackers aren't expecting to be met with anyone, if they are met by someone on the inside, it's probably not going to be someone who's going to meet them with a lot of resistance or put up a heck of a fight. Uh, there's a couple of very upsetting videos to watch of a mother being viciously attacked in front of her toddler on the couch and ultimately thrown down the basement stairs during the day in a home invasion. So what are you expecting to see on the other side of this? An attacker is probably not expecting to see a six foot five CrossFit dude sounding timid on the other side of that door. So that verbalization, you got to practice it. And it's awkward. Nobody likes to do this drill. It's very hard to do. It's even during a firearms training class, people giggle their way through it because having to speak with that level of authority is a challenge and it's awkward. And what I like to tell people is, if you're going to verbalize, I need you to put all of your fear aside. I want you to put on the performance of the lifetime. You're going to win that Academy Award in this moment. Fake it till you make it. I want you to do your best Jack Nicholson right now. Give it to me. And then they laugh and then they do it, right? How, who are you summoning in this moment to command authority? And that's the kind of projection you're going to need to have if you're going to communicate. Otherwise, way to tell them there's a soft, terrified target upstairs and you say your arm, but do they believe it? Uh, yeah, as fast as other otherwise approach it, can you turn the TV on real loud? Can you <laughs> you like home alone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Get some mannequins and uh, <laughs> and pretend you're having a party. <laughs> uh, so that's it. So, so. So you, what I hear you saying there is that if you can't pull that off right, then you've you may invite uh, a further attack. Yes. Yeah. So the alternative is to do what she's did, and and so what do you think about that? Three doors in, um, and in a crawl space. She worked really hard to put barriers between herself and her children. If you're home alone, that's one thing. But if you're home with people you're responsible for, little kids, what are you going to do? I mean, you've got to, she chose, an, she chose a place that she felt clearly was the most inconvenient and hard to get to. And he pursued her through an entire household. And we can argue whether he pursued her or not. Of course, we don't have evidence to that effect. But it's it's hard for me to fathom that if he fought that hard and worked that hard to get to that tiny little spot, that he didn't know that they were there. Uh, she was on the phone, you know, they were talking. Uh, there was not that she was, you know, completely silent. There was sounds coming from the house. So, you know, it's, it's challenging for me to, to think that. And if she was not all that familiar with that gun, I'm, one, I'm glad she grabbed it. And I'm thrilled her husband took her to the range to teach her how to use it. Had she not had that and he discovered them in there, well, you know, that's also up for question what would have happened next. So to to discover a family hiding in a closet, hmm, you know, hmm, I don't really see another option for her to respond. And like you said, Steve, I may have, if it was my, if it was me having had the training and experiences that you and I have had, I may have strategized a different area. But how many people have grown up 
playing hide and seek. And when you don't want to be found, what is your ultimate hiding place? So she went to her ultimate hiding place, not knowing yet how to fight and how to strategize an environment or a room. She went to what she's done her whole life, playing hide and seek, the, the smallest, most discreet, hardest to find place. And she picked one where she could shove her and her babies in it. And she closed the door and locked them behind her. I mean, more power to her. Uh, but that is the difference between a little dose he, of training. You know, and, and, and if he it. hadn't been specifically looking, sorry about that. I think I, I if, if she hadn't, if the, if the perpetrator here hadn't been specifically looking for them, I agree with you. He probably doesn't go to that crawl space if he was just looking for some easy uh, things to fence for drug money. Then he would have been in and out of that house without ever detecting them, which which in this case would have been uh, a preferred result uh, if like this woman's kids hadn't have to live the rest of their life with them seeing their mother shoot a dude in the face five times. And I, I think. You know, Don and Steve, we've covered a lot of cases where male defenders, like I said before, meet the intruder at the door or outside the door or shoot through the door. Uh, and it, it never occurs to them that, listen, if I can hide in my house and avoid having to shoot this guy and he comes in and leaves. And if he comes in and steals something even and leaves without me shooting him, that's an okay result. Uh, there's a mindset going on there. And... and and this woman thought of nothing about the valuables in her house. The only thing that was valuable is her children and her. And if she could hide and end it without being detected, that was a preferred result. Do you read that, Tatiana? Yes. So, uh, Don, here we are again where, where uh, this is one of the more cut-and-dried legal cases. The fact that somebody's broken into a house automatically uh with the castle doctrine allows uh, a home defender to assume they're there to do harm is that is that right yeah i think most places have a statute in place that specifically says that if it's a result of breaking and entering and this was clearly breaking and entering a guy that went to the car to get something so he could literally break in the door as opposed to coming through an open window or jimmying the lock on a screen door. This guy fully intended to break and enter. And typically the law presumes that it's for an illegal purpose. And when confronted by the homeowner, there's a presumption in most places that the person intends harm. Um, and as a result, the fear of that great bodily harm is presumed to be reasonable which of course sets the stage for having the right to use force in defense to deter that intruder up and to and including deadly force. Uh, to, to illustrate this, I brought this up before, not necessarily playing devil's advocate, but just introducing this other dynamic of whether the intruder knew that the homeowner, the, the lady and her kids were there, uh, really to illustrate that it doesn't really matter whether that happened because the context, the frame of reference, the point of view for her behavior is her reasonable perception of what was going on. When, you know, Melinda Herman 
uh, knew someone was in the house, knew doors were being um, broken into. She had a reasonable belief that this guy was coming after her, coming after the kids, separate and apart from just illegally coming into the house. So whether he in fact intended that, uh, I don't think is the legal issue. It's what was going on in her mind and was her response reasonable in the larger totality of the circumstances and the context in which she found herself. And absolutely, this, this is one of those pretty simple things that it didn't matter whether he was shot uh, one time or 50 times as long as he still presented that threat. And uh, she only had six. She sought, sh shot six, and it still didn't um, completely uh, determine, uh, didn't stop the threat until he basically chose to leave. So I don't have any legal concerns whatsoever. And, and I think from a tactical standpoint, as from what I hear Steve and Tatiana saying, she did brilliantly for someone who found themselves unexpectedly in that situation and had only been to the range, what, one time? I suppose one of the issues for the trainers is, was her choice of weapon the right one? And it seems to me the arguments I hear for people that choose revolvers um, as their defensive weapon is the ease of use for inexperienced people that if you can pull the trigger it will fire and you have a much better chance of being actually able to uh, to fire the gun under stress than you might if you were dealing with a semi-automatic that you had to perhaps rack and deal with safeties and that sort of thing. I'm interested in... Sure, so Tatiana, you talked about trainers fitting, think that's true. fitting the person, the right person with the right firearm. What, what's your thought in this case? Now, don't get me wrong. I love a wheel gun. I have an affinity for them. I really enjoy them. I think they're fantastic. And there are instructors out there who do a brilliant job of teaching you how to manipulate a revolver for self-defense. They can be exquisitely, exquisitely effective tools. That being said, I personally prefer to put people into semi-automatics and not necessarily subcompact semi-automatics, but into a full-size semi-automatic. And largely, especially for home defense, is that the ammo capacity becomes a real bonus. <laughs> How many yeah. life-saving opportunities do you want? Now, if I told Melinda Herman, Melinda, I could give you 15, 16, let's go with 16, one in the chamber and a full magazine below, 16 life-saving opportunities, 16 chances to save your children. Or I could give you six chances to save your children. Which would you prefer? If the gun wasn't well, since she the lied at the end choice, and told the guy that she was going to keep shooting when she was out of bullets, <laughs> she's going to take you know the, what? the higher capacity, isn't she? I totally believe that she would have had he continued to pursue her. I do have no doubt in my mind that she would have. But she was out. And many people shooting revolvers don't know they're out until it goes click, click, click. So, um, you know, how many do you want? So that's, that's normally where I start that conversation with people. Now, revolvers are phenomenal. And I would also argue that 
the right revolver in the right hands can be, I'll put air quotes around easier question mark sometimes to learn to shoot. But I've also seen too many people get put into the wrong revolver as a new shooter. And that creates so many more challenges and problems and induces a lot of hesitation, fear, anxiety as a result of not having a great experience. And this is the same problem with people being fitted with super teeny subcompact semi-automatics too. So a snub nose light airweight 38 special is probably not the best choice for a 60 something year old lady who's starting to get arthritic hands and wrists. Um, fraught with issues there. So the right tool for the right person. Now an able-bodied, normal, healthy, no, no gross health issues or concerns or vision problem person coming to the range, which is the majority of people, we put them in a semi-automatic and with the right period of instruction, it is not any more difficult or complex to utilize than a revolver. So I start people with semi-automatics and then I introduce them to revolvers and they choose for themselves which their preference is. But when it comes to making that decision, it comes down to how many life-saving opportunities do I want? How much can I carry on me? Am I carrying a spare magazine? And how competent am I and comfortable am I with that gun? Mechanical safety present or not, that's irrelevant. If you have chosen a gun with that mechanical safety, for personal protection or home defense, we are teaching you to utilize and incorporate that feature in every single thing you do when you're working with that machine. So it is just a natural extension of making it go boom. It should not be a hiccup, a handicap, or a speed bump in the road to you solving the problems at hand. So, you know, many people purchase a firearm for features or because the guy typically guy behind the counter tells you little lady you need a revolver because it's not going to be hard for you to shoot and you have little hands and you have a, a girl brain and you can't think deep thoughts and use a semi-automatic that has been the unfortunate sales pitch for many many years and fortunately i'm seeing retail shift its storyline and really truly start fitting people with the right tools for them now many well-intentioned husbands think that uh maybe a revolver is the right tool for my wife. But many of those individuals don't have the ability to properly teach a semi-automatic anyway. And so that myth perpetuates. And that's why we see a lot of women getting paired with a revolver because the perception is it might be easier. The reality is, is she drives a big car around all day. She can drive that big car around all day and be fine and follow the rules. That car is bigger with more bells and whistles, more complex levers and buttons, if windows, rear view mirrors, it is far more complex than that semi-automatic will ever be. Please do not underestimate her capacity to run a machine. Yeah. And something you said there, uh, very clearly she learned how to fire the weapon from her husband. Uh, would you discourage that? Would you, <laughs> can we get our own, uh, our own training with an expert on our own? Well, let me put it to you this way. I've met a lot of husbands who spent an evening on the couch because their last attempt at teaching their wife at the range landed them there. And now they know better and they're <laughs> signing her up for a private lesson. So <laughs> I would say that uh, spouses teaching spouses, you know, your intentions may be good, but the problem is you know each other too well. You see all the, you perceive 
all of the micro expressions, all of the body language, you just know each other too well to be objective. And that can induce a lot of stress and uh, problems and doesn't always go well uh, as a teacher and as the recipient being the student. So third party, vet your instructors, find someone with a personality that your significant other is going to jive with and feel comfortable with working at the range and invest in a quality lesson so that you can remain objective and cheer them on from the sidelines safely. That's, that's my recommendation. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of cheering on from the sidelines safely, Don, uh, like this, uh, as Tatiana explained in the setup here, phone call was recorded in two different ways. There's the husband's call and then the wife's call. And, and I know from the news articles I looked at, at one point he was like, you can hear him telling the 911 operator, or it's on that call, him telling his wife, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. She's shooting him. She shot him <laughs> in real time as it's happening. Uh, I'm curious. We've heard some 911 calls in our day. Uh, <laughs> One is the fact that she was on the phone with 911, uh, or or at least on the phone with her husband, and the husband was on the phone with 911 is a is a good place to start when we're trying when we see a self defense situation coming. As the defender, we always want to be the first ones to report it if we can. And I'm just curious, <laughs> from a legal perspective, does this, does this help her? <laughs> How does this phone call play out in your mind? Well, you know, what struck me, I suppose, uh, is why was her first call to her husband rather than to 911? And if you look at it pretty closely, uh, it sort of makes sense in many ways. Uh, she was hiding from this guy and she wanted advice from the person that was closest to her that she thought could give her advice. And he did immediately the right thing by getting notifying law enforcement. I don't know how much time delay there was or whether it she called 911 first uh, would that have uh, changed the dynamic I I suspect I suspect not. Um, interestingly, I suppose you're asking Sean to some degree is the mindset uh, of the the husband, you know, the guy who's not there but witnessing it unfolding through the phone, is his attitude uh, a reflection on anything that she might help be held accountable for? For example, if he gave her bad advice and if he told her to shoot him after he had already been shot and had fallen to the ground helpless, uh, how does any of that factor in? And I don't know the answer to that. It's interesting to think about. Uh, obviously, he was distraught, distressed, and was trying to communicate as best he could in real time what was happening. Uh, he had no doubt in his mind that the proper thing for his wife to do was, in fact, to shoot this guy over and over and over until he stopped. And I don't think there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with that, uh, the way that it turned out to be, that he was there, he was being shot, he was uh, still a, a present threat. Until that, that's interesting, though, the advice on the phone uh, and how it's executed. Because we, 
Uh, I shared with you that article not long ago. We haven't explored this case yet, but there's a case where a woman and a husband chased an intruder and the intruder drove towards them with the car and the the wife told the husband to shoot. The husband did, didn't hurt anybody, but had discharged a firearm. He got tried for firing his weapon and was acquitted. Uh, she got tried for telling him to fire the weapon and she got convicted. <laughs> so, so there's a, but I guess that's, uh, if, if there's going to be a lesson from that, the illustration is that, um, if you're the defender, you're the one that has to make the choices because we talked about the Gerald Strebing case before. That's the veteran Marine sniper UCC fighter who got rear-ended late at night and was approached by the other driver who was yelling obscenities and making threats who turned out to be drunk and unarmed. And the lawyer in that case wrote a book about it, and he said that one of his theories, just personally about it, was he was the the shooter, defender, was on the phone with nine eleven while trying to tell the attacker to stay back, and as a marine sniper, this lawyer thought that he was kind of waiting for the shoot no shoot command. He had advocated his own judgment to the 911 operator. He had been trained as a soldier to, to wait for the call to take the shot. And um, nobody can know. And, and that's, I, I mean, maybe that frames like all of our conversations, right? We, we pick these cases apart, we explore them, we look for the lessons for concealed carriers. But in the end, nobody will ever know moment by moment what it was like to be that woman with her children in her house or any of the defenders that we talk about uh, but but you you can't substitute someone else's judgment for your judgment and that's why and, and, a, and a, a wife can't rely on her husband's judgment when she's home alone uh, she needs to have her own and her own training hey Sean I'm rambling now but yeah I Steve yeah go ahead a, Steve I was about to throw it to you anyhow on, uh, the use of revolvers uh, I very much agree with Tatiana uh, if you're going to be a concealed carrier which means you're going to carry that gun around you need to get trained and if you're going to get trained and do that uh, you're going to be much better off with a semi-automatic pistol you know in, in the design that she recommends uh, I do have a slightly different take on the use of revolvers in as much as there are probably going to be a fair number of people that are going to hear this podcast or listen to your subsequent article that right now are already relying on revolvers and that's all that they have available to them at this particular time. So if for those particular people, if indeed that is the case, uh, I'm not a fan, uh, especially of, you know, using these little lightweight revolvers uh, such as Tatiana referred to for home defense. But if you've got a good mid-size K-frame, Smith & Wesson or Ruger revolver, uh, you've been relying on it. You know how to shoot it. You can shoot it well. You understand, you know, the, the, the laws on self-defense. You have a, an understanding of uh, basic tactics. Uh, you're not ill-prepared. So that would just kind of be my, the only thing I would say is that if that's all you have and it's something of that nature, uh, you'll probably be just fine as long as you're up to the task. So Tatiana, before we wrap this up, 
uh, there's, there's one thing I want to talk to you about, and we've touched you touched on it a couple of times before, but I, I think it's worth a, an extra conversation. And I think this goes for women and men. And I've seen this in some of the self-defense cases where there is a male attacker and a male defender. Um, this idea of being nice and and not being rude. It's, it's sometimes manners... I'll, I'll see a guy pull out a gun and shoot somebody. He'd rather shoot somebody uh, than be rude to them. <laughs> and <laughs> and you talked about some of these, the, the female defenders that we're talking about, that there's a, a sociological training to be pleasant or to not be rude or, or, you know, that you need to overcome. How do you get into the mindset where I... I'm not worried about being polite right now. I'm willing to be uh, mean to avoid having to shoot somebody. It's going to take making the leap to take a couple of classes that push you just a little outside of your comfort zone. I'm not saying that you should go full on ShivWorks Craig Douglas right out of the box. That can be great for you, uh, but that's a pretty intense program and a, an incredible one and absolutely worth investigating. Highly recommend. Again, Craig Douglas of ShivWorks and the work that he does really forces you to care about the bigger picture and not about how you're being perceived, but that get comfortable with being uncomfortable concept is that first baby step. And that's the biggest, biggest part of starting this ball rolling for many individuals ready to pursue knowledge for self-defense. So a women's self-defense class is a great one. Uh, a self-defense class that's a hands-on, co-ed hands-on program for women and men is also another great one. The value of a women's only program is that it really is a gateway class. It's not an exclusive, you're only ever going to train with women henceforth, but it's a gateway opportunity to get a lot of these ladies who have been indoctrinated with the be polite, be nice, don't be rude culture, um, you know, societally sweet problem to realize that they are capable of flipping the switch within themselves. They've never had an opportunity to feel that, to be that, to be rude, to be aggressive. And having that first class that introduces themselves them to that part of themselves is a game changer. It's life-changing. So that's the first piece. Now make sure, again, you vet the program, you vet the instructor. We don't want some slap fighting, cutesy poo stuff here. We're talking, you, you need to know how to become violent when that is what is necessary to expel it and to deny it, to reject that violence. So there are fantastic programs out there. Look for them. Then that next step is keep getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Take the next class in the series. Take a another program. Uh, learn what it means to try out Brazilian jiu-jitsu, to take a boxing class. What is it going to feel like if someone gets that close to me? What is it going to feel like if someone pulls or hits? And if that's the fight that you're preparing yourself to reject, you have to experience it. And through that process of those life experiences of being in those training environments, you begin to do the inoculation, the stress inoculation, the awareness of self that is necessary to change and transition. It comes down to confidence. Are you someone who possesses the confidence 
to acknowledge that fear and say, not today and not me and not now. Other than to say, well, maybe if I look away, it won't be there and I won't get bit by it. So there's no one perfect little pill to take that turns people into John Wick ninjas. Uh, it is a, it's a process and it's an investment, but it's absolutely worthwhile. Don, as we're wrapping up here, um, I'd love to get your final thoughts on this case that we talked about today. Well, first and foremost, of course, the, the goal, the immediate goal is to protect yourself, save your own life, save the lives of those that you have chosen and taken on the responsibility to protect. And in both of these cases, these individuals were successful at that. So they're to be commended uh, very much so. At the same time, each of the scenarios point out tactical issues, uh, training issues, mindset issues uh, that we can all learn from, the things that were done the best and some things perhaps that would have put them in a better situation to have uh, avoided the use, uh, the, the need to use deadly force. Uh, the bottom line is if someone comes into your house and intends harm, uh, you need to defend yourself. You need to use the force necessary to prevent yourself and your family from being harmed. And when that threat is over, you need to stop. You will have great protection in your home especially, and uh, the law will defer to the homeowner defending their castle. Likewise, even in a public place, if someone expresses the intent and has the ability to seriously harm you or to commit a forcible felony like robbery or sexual assault, you have the legal right to defend yourself up until the point of using lethal force that's necessary to prevent yourself from being killed or um, in, in many instances either sexually assaulted or robbed. So legally, the cases we've talked about aren't difficult uh, to, to understand clearly why there was never any serious issue that these individuals acted lawfully. We know from our other cases that it's not always the case, but certainly through legal training, uh, knowing where those boundaries are, uh, and then combine that with the tactical training that Tatiana and Steve talk about, puts you in the best possible situation to not only survive the physical attack, but to be the best insulated from the second um, fight, the one uh, in the legal system, should you ever be faced with that. Steve, final thoughts or lessons that you pull out of uh, this case? Uh, well, there were two things I saw in common that I was impressed with, and that was the role that mindset played. And uh, both of these, uh, these ladies exhibited a terrific mindset, in, uh, in my opinion. You know, they had the, the willingness to confront violence, uh, respond uh, with everything they needed to do in order to protect themselves. Neither one of them gave up, and I thought that that was admirable. Uh, Colonel Cooper had what he referred to 
you know, this is secondhand. Uh, but what I learned from the Texas Pistol Academy was what he called, you know, kind of the combat pyramid. I know combat's kind of fallen out of favor, the term combat's kind of fallen out of favor today. And it was like a pyramid with the, uh, in, a, in, you know, uh, descending order, it was mindset, tactics, uh, skills, and then tools. And so we kind of saw, or I think we've seen, kind of the part that that played in that, in some instances, maybe the tools were not ideal uh, and the skills were not that great, but just that emphasis on good mindset and tactics, uh, I, I think that goes a long ways towards uh, making us able to protect ourselves. And so this is an opportunity for us now to, okay, uh, I'm going to develop that attitude. I'm going to manifest that attitude. I'm going to learn how to work in those kinds of situations. I'm going to have tactical plans, kind of like the way we discussed with Claude. Now I really want to train and I want to focus on those skills and I want to make sure that I have adequate tools. So I, I thought both of those were great cases and I thought Tatiana's insight into both was just spot on. Speaking of which, Tatiana, before we wrap up, you get the final word. What's your, what's your big lesson from, from this case? Really, it is the tools that you have and the training that you pursue could be the thing that saves your life. And it really doesn't have to be, and it, it, you don't have to try and become a Navy SEAL unless that's your mission and goal, right? You have to be able to be willing to be a little uncomfortable, make the leap, get the tool, and take some training. And it is 100% worth it because ultimately you are betting your life on what you know and what you have. And if you find yourself in these situations, the time to have pursued that knowledge will have passed. So take advantage of the time that you have. There are phenomenal trainers in this country. There are phenomenal ranges and venues, and it is a welcoming environment. So please, please take the opportunity to pursue that knowledge because we hope you never have to use it, but we'd prefer you have it than not. All right, everybody, that's the podcast for today. Thanks for listening through to the end. Uh, in the final minutes there of that conversation, you heard Don West and Steve Moses reference another case that we discussed in our uh, first part of our conversation with Tatiana Whitlock. Uh, you can check the CCW Safe Archives for that. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a new conversation. Until then, thanks for listening. Be smart, stay safe, take care. <laughs>